Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 87 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Wow, 87. <laughs> we're, we're getting closer to 100. This is this is kind of fun. How you doing? How are you doing? Um, just curious. I still hear from you various, various, various yous. <laughs> I still hear from... <laughs> Various people, but I'm how you say various yous. I hear I still hear from several of you through emails and and comments on YouTube and stuff like that. And it's so good to hear from you all. I hope you're finding some some moments of peace, some moments of healing, finding some of those windows along the way that just make make this tolerable and can make you get through it. And for those of you that are already doing better, or those of you who are supporting somebody who is dealing with benzo withdrawal, um, also for you. Just thanks for listening, and I'm so glad you are here. Today we got a wonderful interview with Dr. Colin Bradley from Ireland, and I'm really excited to share that one with you today. Uh, that will be part one today and part two in the next episode, although not tomorrow or anything, just they'll both be released on the same day. But but I wanted to talk a little bit to you before we jumped into that interview. So just a couple of things. You know, I, I noticed an interesting clip from... CBS that came out a little while ago is on 60 Minutes Plus, and I think it was also on CBS Sunday Morning um, from one of the reporters who looked into the life of a of a woman who's gone through addiction. She she labeled it addiction with benzodiazepines. Um, I believe even Anna Lemke from Stanford was also quoted in that um, piece, and um, it was another another coverage, another example of coverage out there about our condition. If you've seen that, check it out. If you haven't, let me know. I'll try to put a, a link to it in our show notes so you can check that out. But as we go along and we can get more visibility within the media, then the more people will pay attention. And of course, the more we can do about this and try to try to get things to change. Uh, Benzo Stories, a few of you sent some moments in to me lately. Always happy to get some more. I am going to do some stories coming soon in the next couple episodes. I hope to do a dedicated Benzo Stories episode. So hopefully that'll be coming up really soon. I've been back in town um, a lot lately and it's been good. I haven't been in Kansas City as much, although I still have to go back early in September and I'll probably be going back once a month, maybe a little more than that just to take care of things and handle things. But things are getting a little better. I'm still trying to coordinate things with my mother. She's still in a rehab facility, unfortunately. About three times now, just before they transfer her back to long-term care, somebody tested positive within the rehab facility, and so everything's on shutdown for 14 days or 10 days, depending. So I just I just feel so bad for her because we just want to get her in a facility that is stable, 
the new facility that we're trying to get her transferred to is right across the street from my sister's apartment. And so that would make make it, you know, much easier for her to go and visit and help out. And I can come in town and see her. And of course, while she's at rehab and they've had a positive test for COVID, they of course have zero visitation. So I can't even go back and see my mom right now. And she's, we haven't seen her for over a month now due to this process. And so many of you may have experienced that too with loved ones or yourself who's in senior facilities and went through that in the in the beginning and the early stages of COVID. It's the stories I hear about people and um, in this situation, it's just, it's it's heartbreaking. And so I know I'm not the only one that's dealing with this or my parents are not the only ones that are dealing with it, but it would be really nice to get this behind us so that we can get back to more open visitation so we can see our loved ones who are being cared for by other facilities who are in a certain state of, like my parents, dementia, where they need to be in a facility now and can't have home care anymore. And so anyway, um, still dealing with that, but hopefully that's going to be, we're going to work that through and, and find a way to, to handle that better. Um, I guess, yeah, handle it better might be the right word. I'm handling it the best I can. It's still stressful. Um, still have some symptoms, still have a bunch of stuff going on. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that right now, but, but I'm still here and, um, trying to get the podcast out a little more regularly and been catching up on some emails. I also wanted to update you that our website, I'm still trying to make progress on that transition. As many of you know, I've been migrating our site from the old Benzo Free site to the new Easing Anxiety site, but it's been a very, very slow process due to my family situation in Kansas City and other things that have gotten in the way. But I am trying to get back to that and get that cleaned up. I would, I, I do, I do so much better with things that are organized. I think many of you can relate to that. Those of you suffering with anxiety, when things are disorganized, I, I don't handle things well and I, I need things to be organized. And so having two websites, two websites I need to post each podcast on, two websites to maintain and I, it's been really confusing and I really want to get that done and get to a very simple streamlined process for putting out new content and for providing information. So I'm hoping that I can get that cleaned up and done and we'll get everything moved over and, and move forward. So anyway, just wanted to update you on that. I think that's all I'm going to talk about today on the intro. I'd really like to move forward and let's get to our conversation with Dr. Bradley. Today, our format's going to include our introduction, which you just heard, and of course, this feature that we've been talking about, the conversation with Dr. Bradley. And before we move on, don't forget, I'd love to hear from you, comments on our videos on YouTube, podcast posts on our feedback form on our website at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. And while you're there, perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list or even donate to support the work we do. I say this every time, but every little bit does help. It helps to keep us moving. Um, you know, there's still absolutely, <laughs> we're still in the red on this podcast every month, but the donations help to cover the expenses. I have a lot of expenses with this and keeping this going, and at least it helps to offset the expenses, and that's a really big help, and I really appreciate that. And remember, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Let's move on. Our feature today is a conversation with Dr. Colin Bradley. As we've done many times before, this conversation will be released in two parts. 
This is episode 87, and it's part one. Of course, episode 88 will be part two. See, that makes sense. They, you know, they numerically follow each other. Um, both are released at the same time because I don't like to make people wait to, to listen to the second part of the interview if they don't want to. So I always try to release these as, a, as what I call a double header. So we will release these both on the same date. Hopefully I'm going to get these out here tomorrow once I get this all done. So, but let me tell you a bit about our guest so you know who we're who who you're listening to. I think that's always a good way to do this. <laughs> Colin Bradley is professor of general practice, also known as family medicine, at University College Cork in Southern Ireland, as well as leading the Department of General Practice in the UCC School of Medicine. He provides family medicine services to a socioeconomically deprived urban population. Prior to taking up his position in Cork, he worked in practices serving similar populations in Birmingham and Manchester in the UK. His doctoral research was on the topic of uncomfortable prescribing, such as investigating prescribing decisions made by family physicians which made them uncomfortable. Among the medicines with which doctors are sometimes uncomfortable were benzodiazepines, other painkillers, psychotropic medicines such as antidepressants, and antibiotics. Callan has since undertaken other studies on the prescribing of these and other medicines, and was also fortunate to be awarded a Fulbright scholarship in 2017, which enabled him to travel to the U.S., specifically Oklahoma, to study the opioid crisis. Around 2000, Colin was appointed to a group set up to advise the Irish government on benzodiazepines. This group published a report on benzodiazepine prescribing at that time and made a number of recommendations on how prescribing of these medicines could be improved and made safer. A study undertaken in 2020, to which he was a contributor, noted that the pattern of prescribing of benzodiazepines in Irish primary care had changed little in the intervening 20 years. He is now working with a group of academics and people who have experienced issues with benzodiazepine use and withdrawal to co-design some strategies to help better manage benzodiazepine-related issues in primary care. In fact, this group of academics and people who have experienced issues with benzodiazepines is where I first met Colin. I was also pulled into this group who was working on some de-prescribing strategies, and I was really impressed by his understanding of the issues um, involved with benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal. So I invited him onto our show, and he graciously accepted, and I am so glad that he's here. A couple of things about the conversation. There was some on-site background noise for part of the interview, and I can't do much to edit that out, but I tried to fix it as I could. And and since this was a virtual interview uh, across um, the ocean, <laughs> the sound quality is a bit out of my control, but I still believe it came out pretty well, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, enough Enough delay. Let's hear from Dr. Bradley. All right, so we're here on the podcast, and we are here with, um, actually, I don't know what I should call you. Is it Dr. Colin Bradley, Professor Colin Bradley, just Colin? How would you like uh, to be Col referred Col to you? Col Colin is just fine, yeah. Okay, uh, do you usually go by professor formally, or how do you usually uh, handle things? Well, interestingly, I go by professor in my academic work, so my students would know me as professor, but when I'm dealing with patients, I prefer to be called Colin or doctor, and 
I get a mixture. I get Dr. Colin, and some people aren't comfortable with calling me Colin uh, or, or formal <laughs> in this part of the world. So a lot of them will call me Doc. <laughs> Actually, be, uh, that's what I usually do. I usually use the word Doc. It's kind of casual, but I like it. So Yeah, casual, but yeah, it recognizes the sort of status, if you like. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And um, I was wondering if you could start out maybe, and this is what I do with most of the guests we have on the podcast, is tell me just a little bit about your background uh, medically and other things, and then we'll move from that more into the benzodiazepine area. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, as you know, again, I'm here in Ireland, so my training is a little bit different from what it would be in, in, in North America. But I did my undergraduate medical education, as I would refer to it, in uh, Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, then following that, I um, undertook uh, training in family medicine, or again, as we call it here, general practice uh, in Cork, the southern part of Ireland. Uh, on finishing my general practice training, I actually went over then to the UK. Uh, I worked for a short time in South Wales uh, before taking up uh, a position, which was a mixture of academic work and clinical work in the University of Manchester. And I was there for about seven years before I then moved up the ranks a little bit to a senior academic position in the University of Birmingham, also in England. And then after a number of years there, after about five or so years there, I got a permanent, um, what I might call a uh, yeah, permanent academic position um, in, in here in, in uh, Cork. So I came back to Cork where I'd done my general practice training. And uh, I was actually appointed as the first ever Professor of General Practice in University College Cork. Oh, that was great. about 25 years ago now. Okay, yeah, it's been a little bit. Yeah, it's been a little my bit wife, of time, exactly. Yeah, and my wife and I just had our 25th anniversary, and it was one of those things that I'm trying to think of, you know, where those 25 years went, but they went quick. Indeed, indeed, yeah. It's 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 funny because, as you say, some things seem to have happened only yesterday, and other things happened so long ago. It's hard to. Oh, it is. Well, with your background, I know you have a lot of background in family practice and other stuff. But you also have, um, I read about your Fulbright scholarship um, to the U.S., and that was on opioids. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So that was, again, a great opportunity, and I must say I got a lot out of it. That was 2017-18. And I suppose the background to that was that I was working uh, in Ireland on a number of research projects, which were in the area of what I would now identify as sort of problematic prescribing. So kind of areas of prescribing medicines that cause difficulties or challenges for doctors, uh, particularly doctors in family medicine. So it's, it includes things like benzodiazepines, but also uh, on, um, drugs like antibiotics as well, which can be problematic for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I had this sort of background in a number of research projects in, in this area of prescribing and say what I call problematic prescribing. So then I met someone, uh, actually a lady from Oklahoma, who was over in Ireland on a Fulbright scholarship. And she oh. talked to me about Fulbright and, and why it was such a good opportunity. And I said, okay, I'll have a look into that. So I did and subsequently applied and was successful in getting a Fulbright. But part of the um, requirements of, like, of a Fulbright scholarship, certainly at, at a sort of senior academic level, was you had to identify what you were going to do when you went to the States and how what you would do in the States would be beneficial both to your hosts in the US, but also what the benefits might be to uh, your, uh, your sort of home institution. And uh, opiates fitted beautifully into that role in a way, uh, because it's clearly a massive problem in the US. And with my background in, in doing research in family medicine around problematic prescribing, you know, I, I had something to offer my hosts. 
but also uh, was able to persuade uh, the funders because it was co-funded by our health research board in Ireland, and it was able to persuade them that you know um, a similar opiate crisis could arise in Ireland. We're not immune to it, and would be useful to if you like the Irish health system for someone like me to go over understand what happened what went wrong in the US, we might say, and how to make sure it doesn't go wrong in Ireland. Uh, it was interesting in looking into the background of that, I, I, as I say, not only are we not immune, but we were slipping maybe more slowly, but we're slipping down the same slippery slope to some extent in that um, a lot of potent opioids were being used increasingly for what I would identify as kind of everyday pain, uh, you know, okay. the kind of things that, that historically we wouldn't have used strong opioids for. Um, and so, as I say, I think there was a little bit of uh, the, uh, yeah, a little bit of the same kind of ideas around opiates being not as dangerous as originally thought, or not. Uh, so really, the problem was more about not recognizing that strong opiates like oxycodone are very different from the everyday opiates like codeine and dihydrocodeine that we would have been used to. Mm. Yeah, here in the U.S., I know, of course, opioids have been the initial problem. Recognized benzodiazepines seem to follow. Do you think that was reversed in Ireland, where you recognized the benzodiazepine issue first, and then now opioids, you're saying, are starting to become a more of an issue? Yes, I, I, I would agree. I, I mean, and as I say, I had done some work on benzodiazepines in Ireland, uh, well, well before, in fact, uh, applying for the Fulbright. So, yeah, I think there was a recognition in Ireland that uh, benzodiazepines were problem drugs as well. And um, so back in 2001, 2000, year 2000, 2001, I actually sat on a, a government um Body looking at benzodiazepines, we called the Benzodiazepine Committee, and we looked at kind of what was going on, how they were being prescribed, uh, perhaps how they were being misused, uh, and what problems were associated with misuse and overuse of benzodiazepines. So there was already an awareness at that stage was it was a problem, uh, and that body issued some recommendations and uh, you know did some work to highlight the issues around benzodiazepines. So so I agree with you. I think. For quite a long time, we'd recognised that there were uh, problems around the use of benzodiazepines. Now, having said that, uh, you know that was two thousand and one. I think we published our report and our recommendations. Um, I also was involved in, in some research last year, as recently as that, uh, looking at the pattern of benzodiazepine prescribing and dispensing, and finding mm -hmm. that rel relatively little had changed. There have been some small changes, but nothing like the kind of change we expected to see when we were sitting in that committee. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting. Let me back up a, a few steps here. When did you first recognize benzodiazepines were a problem? Oh, I, I recognize them pretty well. I think more or less when I started in an active practice. Uh, and okay. you know, even, even as a trainee in general practice, I could see that benzodiazepines were, were drugs that, uh, it's interesting, that the drugs that made doctors uncomfortable. In fact, that was the title of my doctoral work was around uncomfortable prescribing. So yeah. that was one of the drugs that came out very clearly from that study as a drug that caused some discomfort to doctors. So doctors knew that there was something about benzodiazepines, uh, how they were being used, uh, that was, as I say, a source of discomfort. And the main discomfort, I think, was around the fact that we, we knew what you know the, the, the guidelines said and what experts were saying and, and, and what the drug licensing said about how this should be used for short-term use and so forth. And yet we also saw on a daily basis people who were being prescribed benzodiazepines for years on end. Uh, right. So there was a mismatch there between what was supposed to be happening and what we knew was happening in real life, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And it seems like I was watching when I first wrote my book and then started the podcast, I was reading a lot of information from Ireland because it did seem like 
your government and the medical um, establishment over there were more aware of this problem and seeing the problem before we were. And I also know that you put, of course, um, the government actually put in more restrictions on benzodiazepines, which had both good and bad consequences. Could you, could you yeah. elaborate on that a little bit? I can indeed, yeah. So, uh, yes, exactly. And I think it's, it shows it's, it, the, the way to tackle this has to be a lot more subtle than kind of government regulation. But on the other hand, the, the government regulation is an expression of a recognition that there is a problem. It's just perhaps yeah. a, a rather crude solution. But basically <laughs> what they've done in Ireland was they have categorized benzodiazepines as controlled drugs uh, along the lines of opioids and, and okay. phen- uh, barbitones and so on. So basically that there are a number of drugs which are, uh, let's say, in this category of controlled drugs. Now, within the controlled drugs category, there are subcategories. So there are ones that are like, uh, you know, heroin and so on, which would be the highest category, very restricted use, not really used medically, in fact. Uh, and then there would be others that there's medical uh, use, but it's quite tightly restricted and a lot of uh, regulation around how they were dispensed and, and tracked and so on. And then there are others which the benzodiazepines were in where there was restrictions. They were legally categorized control drugs, but the restrictions around them were, were a little bit less stringent. Um, but at least there was, you know, by categorizing them as a controlled drug, it was a recognition that they were drugs which needed some regulation and uh, practitioners need to be careful about prescribing. But having said that, um, I think that the as I said, trying to just put regulations on them, uh, as I didn't really have a huge impact, in fact, uh, but it was at least just an expression of um, a recognition at the government level that there was an issue right. or a problem. And did you also run into the issue that where patients who were attempting to withdraw whatever had more difficulty um, getting the medications or who were dependent had more difficulty because of the regulations? Uh, again, Yes, that would be the case, but not not universally. It really depended okay. on came back down to the practitioner then as to how they interpreted the regulation, so to speak. So some, uh, for example, and, and again, I should say that some benzodiazepines are more tightly regulated than others. So, uh, for example, uh, I'll just give an example. One of the ones that became very tightly regulated was temesapam. So it okay. uh, there was a lot of more strict writing and dispensing regulations around that particular benzodiazepine, and some doctors responded to that by just stopping prescribing it right. others used it as, as a, a a mechanism to raise the issue with their patients and say that we need to try and get you off this because it's a very it's a, you know it's, it's now become a hassle to prescribe this can we yeah. swap you onto something a little bit less hassly and um and that you know that opened up a conversation perhaps about, about withdrawing uh and some then just adapted and kind of you know wrote out the prescriptions went through the, the administrative burdens, but didn't change the actual sort of dispensing or prescribing. So right. there was a range of responses, but um, but unfortunately, and I think that's why I think you know, regulations and controls like that can be a crude instrument because what it can do is it can prompt some practitioners to say, well, I'm not going to prescribe that anymore. End yeah. off, you know, and, and people are cut off at the knees, so to speak. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, that's a, fear, that's a fear we have over here. I know I'm, I'm working with... Um, an action work group here in our state, which we work with litigation. But one of the things we're always trying to be very cautious about, and I have significant concerns, is of just going too far. And and those people who need them, either are dependent or are trying to withdraw, just not having a already they're having difficulty getting the drugs from some doctors. And exactly. to and to change that significantly can be very dangerous for people and can force them into um, cold turkey, abrupt cessation 
types of situations, which, as you know, is not a not a benefit <laughs> when you're coming off of a benzodiazepine. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we like all these things in the price of the opioids as well. That, you know, when when it's identified as a problem, there can be a little bit of what might be described as a moral panic. And yeah. Some people then think we have to get rid of this problem. Like exactly. Yesterday. Rather than saying this is a problem, uh, it has arisen over some period of time. Uh, and there are issues about trying to deal with the problem uh, that require us to be more subtle in our approach, shall we say. Um, and yeah, that's it. And, and do you think that some of that reluctance to prescribe is also fear of litigation with, from the doctor? Uh, yes, I, I think there, there has been a bit of that too. And, and interesting enough, the, the people who are the most active in that would be our, our medical licensing body, the Medical Council okay. of Ireland. So they have taken a number of cases uh, against doctors, if you like, for over-prescribing benzodiazepines and that has, has alarmed other doctors who are not over-prescribing perhaps or are prescribing you know reasonably carefully shall we say uh, but some of them have been panicked into withdrawing people suddenly because they've seen a colleague who's been up before the licensing body so to speak, exactly and, and, and got yeah. into trouble um, and it's interesting I've, I've done a bit of work now with the licensing body uh, around these cases and, and tried to help them sort of understand that that uh, my, the way I describe this actually to them and to other bodies I work as well is when you're looking at a, a doctor's prescribing, you shouldn't look at you know where they are or how much benzodiazepine they're prescribing. You should look at how they're prescribing and whether they're trying to uh, reduce the prescribing and, and regulate the okay. prescribing rather than stopping it suddenly. So and the way I express that sometimes is it's not to, to it shouldn't be looking at whether where people are, uh, but rather look at whether they're being carried along by the tide. Or swimming against the tide and there is there's a certain tide from patient pressure that has to be said to you know prescribe these and, and continue to dispense them liberally and you have to swim against that but but it is a, it is a, as i described it is swimming against the tide it's not kind of you know building a wall and, and just right. stopping that the, the water coming right yeah. <laughs> and then that's you know if I, from two angles, I wanted to ask your um, your opinion on this. From the first of all, from the physician angle, what would you say to a physician who is concerned, um, realizes as realizing that benzodiazepines are becoming a problem? What what would you say to that person about how to go forward in your prescribing practice? Well, one of the things, and again, it's interesting. This has become alerted to by some discussions I've had with colleagues recently. I have to recognize that that there, there's a range of different reasons as to why people get into trouble with benzodiazepines and there are a range of sort of patterns of use if you like so some people are using you know very modest amounts but on a very continuous basis and yeah. they're still you know there's still risks associated with that. the risks aren't huge and they, there's no rush with them but it's a matter of flagging and saying look uh, we need to try and get you off these drugs but we don't have to do it today we can take right. time we can identify a time in your life when things are perhaps a little calmer and you think you can tackle this because it is going to be a job of work to get you off these medicines. There are other people whose level of medicine is so uh, like extensive or very large uh, quantities and they've been taking you know very high doses and they've developed a lot of tolerance and they will have to be weaned down you know fairly they need to start a wean fairly urgently although again okay. that's something you don't need to rush but it's something you need to tackle if like now rather than put it off because they can continue to escalate uh, and, and become more tolerant and then there's the, the category of, of people who are kind of quite chaotic in their benzodiazepine usage and who are you know using getting it off the street and going you know, doctor shopping and so on uh, and uh, those are people who actually have very significant mental health problems and not benzodiazepines right. in many ways for them is a symptom of 
bigger problems. So the benzodiazepine perhaps may not be their biggest problem. And so with those, I would say, you know, try to look at what more globally, what's going on, why they're uh, having this sort of very disruptive and chaotic life and what one can do to try and get things in order for them so that they can then get on top of, of their medication problem, shall we say. So I think it's important to, to recognize that there are these different sort of categories of like a benzodiazepine user and, and they need quite different approaches. That's great. That's, that's really informative. On, on the second part of that question, to the patient, um, I, one of the most common questions I receive on the podcast is, my doctor won't prescribe me, my doctor doesn't think this is a problem, either it has cut off my meds or doesn't think I have a problem, won't help me taper my meds, or just can't find a doctor that will work with them. What would you say to a patient that said to you, I can't find a doctor to help me, I would like to come off of benzodiazepines, but I can't find somebody to help? I mean, I know the U.S., it's hard to locate sometimes doctors who, and one of the things we often say is, you know, try to find a doctor that will work with you. They don't have to be benzo wise, which is a term we use often over here, um, but somebody who's willing to work with you on that taper. But somebody say, well, my doctor says this is not a problem and won't, won't reduce my medication or something. What do you say to a patient who's having trouble finding the medical support who chooses to withdraw or come off of this medication? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm glad to say that that's, I don't think that's such a big problem here. I have come across okay. it here, but um, I, I think we've, uh, and again, particularly with my work with the medical board, if you like the medical regulator, we've seen more doctors who, if you like, have lost control of, of their benzodiazepine prescribing. And what happens is they attract then some of these chaotic users, they right. attract, it's, uh, attract certain criminal element even. So those doctors are, are if you like, the ones have been identified as, as okay. being problematic from the system point of view. And um, they're undoubtedly doctors who, again, do have a very um, rigid attitude, shall we say, uh, but they would I'd have to say in a minority. And one of the things we have here is uh, GPs or family doctors uh, have quite a lot of um, like interaction with each other. They have these small groups for education. And, and uh, actually I've attended one myself. And that you get a kind of a group uh, discussion and group mentality there, which is that no one is sort of encouraging in the group to, to stop people dead. There's a recognition okay. that across these groups of doctors that I've ever met with, anyway, that patients need help uh, rather than a hindrance, so to speak. Okay. But, so I suppose that, that, that finding a doctor who's uh, prepared to go down the road with you in terms of, of uh, withdrawing or weaning is probably not a, a huge problem here. I can't say it doesn't exist, but I don't think it's, it's a okay. very big problem. But having said that, I, I think there are um, there's still quite a lot of ignorance among doctors as to you know how to do it and the, the pacing of it and so on. So I've seen actually seen an example recently of a patient of mine who uh, had a, a benzodiazepine withdrawal seizure, and they were seen in hospital, and they were sent out with with you know a benzodiazepine withdrawal regime, which required them to reduce their benzodiazepine use by about ten percent a week every week okay. over about six or seven weeks. Okay, just, yeah, that's not going to work. You know what I mean? No. That's just much too rapid. Um, and that's someone who, you know, well-intentioned, understood that withdrawal was necessary, understood that a wean was necessary, but just didn't know the detail of it. I think a relatively inexperienced younger doctor, I suspect, who, uh, as I knew the principle, but didn't know the finer points. Of right, right. Yeah, we see that a lot too, where doctors say, yeah, well, you know, you do have to taper off this and they'll say a two week or a four week regimen. And it's yeah. so hard to help them understand that with benzodiazepines, you know, we say sometimes it can take a year or two for some yeah. people to taper off of these drugs. 
And of course, I know you're probably familiar with the action manual. You and I were in a um, in a work group a little bit ago, um, doing some research on deprescribing and on helping people, you know, with some protocols. And that came up a couple times too. Is that something that you were familiar with that manual or that protocol from? Yes, since... indeed. From okay. Heather Ashton. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not quite sure when I came across that, but but I, I, I've definitely been aware of that for quite a long time. And and you're right. I find that uh, a lot of colleagues who like have, as I say, that the concept of, of uh, winning or withdrawal, but they haven't sort of looked at the manual, so they, yeah. they are re- unrealistic in terms of how they go about it sometimes, um, and particularly, as I say, as, as being too rapid. Just going back to the thing they're saying, though, that the, the, the patient who, who sort of hasn't got that kind of support and help, yeah. uh, it is something they can do themselves, and I think that's one of the things I'd say that's changed in recent years is the, you know, the access that people have to perhaps good advice online. I mean, obviously a lot of rubbish right. and, and some dangerous stuff online. Yes, but, yes. But if you, if you get the right source, um, you can actually go about this yourself and you don't have to wait for your doctor, so to speak. Um, and what I find here certainly is a lot of people are you know, on benzodiazepines long-term. They get them on what we call a repeat prescription. So the dose isn't being changed. Nobody's doing it right. very much about it. There's a kind of, and I think that's the bigger problem we have here. There's a sort of passive acceptance to some extent that as long as people aren't coming banging down the door looking to uh, increase their dose or they're not banging down the door to decrease the dose, they'll just keep getting the same dose. Yeah. Uh, and, and even if they do come and ask to be withdrawn, then they can sometimes say, okay, we'll stop issuing them <laughs> rather than saying, no, okay, we need to engage in a process here now and you and I need to work together, as you say, could be for some extended period of time on getting you off these drugs. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we have to pay attention to here in the States. You know, I know we're, I feel like we're late to the dance and we're still catching up on a lot of things. Um, in the UK, I mean, you have, you know, Professor Ashton and Malcolm Later, um, Shane Kenny did the documentary for BBC a while back. Um, you've had a lot of different things that have gone on for a while showing and exposing the benzodiazepine issues um, throughout the different countries of the UK um, and Ireland. And it was one of those things where I often look to um, articles and information from um, your region because, you know, we were kind of behind. It took us a while. Thankfully, our FDA, our Food and Drug Administration, just last fall finally officially recognized the dependence issue with benzodiazepines. It was their second black box warning. You might be aware of that. Um, and and before that, the only the only black box warning we had released was on the the combination use of opioids and benzodiazepines with, right. with, that, with that death. But now they finally have recognized the dependence issue. And this has been a huge move for us is that we're finally moving that. I think your government, again, has been doing that for some time and we're just kind of catching up. Is that kind of how you feel here with the U.S. that we're kind of catching up to? Absolutely. I mean, again, over the 20 years or so, 25 years, I'm saying back in Ireland, it, you know, I've been to umpteen meetings and and occasions and so on. Uh, As I say, it's, it's it's quite an attractable problem. So as you say, we've recognized the problem for quite a long time and we've been trying to tackle it in various ways uh, over that time. But it still ends up, as I say, being a continuing issue or problem. Yeah. And I think what's happening now is we're beginning to recognize that, that you know, there isn't a one size fits all. And also that this is something that isn't easy. And right. I think there was a certain assumption, first of all, that, uh, and I think because we've got these, what I might call chronic stable users who are using a mm-hmm. little constantly, but not seeming, to get, not seeming to get into any trouble. They were seen as, well, that's not an issue. And then the, the street use and chaotic use was seen as, that was the entirety of the problem, so to speak. And yeah. the, inter, the interrelationship between 
people who are getting you know the the, the sleeper on a constant basis and the people who are uh, buying them on the street and, and using them in excessive doses and so on and that the link between those two is really as i say it's, it's, it's interesting i was at a meeting again some years ago where it was highlighted very graphically by a, a police officer who was mm-hmm. obviously dealing with the kind of chaotic streets street problem where it overlaps a little bit with other illegal drugs and so on and and he was saying that he'd uh, arrested this guy who had quite a stock of benzodiazepines uh, on his person or, or wherever they arrested him but what he also found was that this guy had legitimate prescriptions from pretty well every gp practice in the city right right <laughs> so, yeah so there's a little bit that and that would really highlight this interaction between people who are getting the prescription regulated from the doctor who's not perhaps got their eye on the ball very closely um and then this person is you know because these things as you know certainly it's the case here and i'm sure it's the same in the us there's a certain street value and yeah. uh, these as i say these drugs are, are traded and that's where they again uh, contribute to the like the, the sharp end of the problem that's perceived at a societal level and a law enforcement level and so on but actually right. underpinning that there's a whole range of problems right down to the, the elderly patient who's been getting sleep retirement for Absolutely. years who yeah. hasn't got into any trouble yet but now they're getting into their 70s and they're beginning to f- try to get out, out of the bed at night and falling over and breaking their hip do you know what I mean exactly which is usually a downturn then in their overall health over time hips i know Absolutely. often lead to that yeah um in fact i have two parents that i've just put into um f- senior facilities both with dementia and both have had um experience with benzodiazepines and it's been it's nice to have that knowledge at least to come in and, and be able to speak with the physicians and you know help understand what's going on but i do know that that's still a go-to medication in um in senior care and and yes. and it's amazing, and especially with dementia, and that's probably a good topic to talk about briefly. Is that with, with dementia, as you know, agitation, um, sundowners, all those different things that go along with it. Um, mm-hmm. Benzos are are a go to, you know, whether it's Xanax or Clonopin, whatever they're going to pull out, but it's a go to medication still. And I don't know. Do you think all the doctors are aware about the complications, especially with falls? Um, I, I, yeah, I think I think not. The thing, or at least. You see, I think there's an awareness, but it's not a very uh, alert awareness, shall we say. And there's okay. an awareness that it, it's, it's, it's a problem for, seen as a problem for a minority of patients, but I actually think it's a problem for a much larger number of patients. And that's also something which, again, is, is um, a problem, I suppose, with the general practice of primary care generally, is you know the amount of time you can have with patients sometimes is quite restricted. And unless yes. you talk to people about how they're taking the medicines and what effects they're having on them, you, you don't necessarily see them as, as problematic for them and, and and they may not recognize it either but as you say if you start to probe things like if they're having falls or start to probe things like if they're having um uh, cognitive issues or again if they're having uh, one of the other things we'd see here and i'm so falling into a stereotype of irish people here but you know people would be having problems when they have a little alcohol on top of their heads right. on. You know, so they might get away, you know, with their, their normal dose of, of uh, Xanax or, or uh, Diazepam, whatever. Then, you know, they go to a party, have a few drinks, and suddenly they're, they're quite ill, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you had mentioned, uh, back to the street use for a second, and then we'll talk more about the um, the prescribed use. But on the street use side, um, I was reading an article um, when it, before this interview, and I pulled up one from the Irish Examiner just from May of this year. And it had mentioned about, um, it was called, titled, The Little Ticking Time Bombs on the Streets of Cork. And it mentioned that Cork was actually has the highest incidence of street benzo use. Is this something you're aware of? Um, and if so, what is it like there? And what's the primary problems with this 
within Cork yeah. and surrounding areas. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it's so, like more so in Cork than in, in other areas. And there are definitely similar areas in other cities, shall we say. So it is an urban phenomenon. And I think okay. it's very much associated with urban deprivation. That's where we'd see it. So, and I would have seen the same. It's interesting because I was saying I worked in, in Manchester and in Birmingham in the UK. Again, in the practices I've always worked in have been in areas of, of urban deprivation. Right, and right. Where you get that combination, you know, of the combination of, of poverty and ill health that goes with poverty and the mental stresses of, of living a life in a you know deprived area, then there's there's much more uh, sort of tendency for uh, resorting to benzodiazepines as a kind of medical solution to what are actually social problems. Okay, like an that, escape. That's quite well that's, identified, yeah. in fact. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to take a short break here. And then we'll come back and, and record part two. Does that sound okay to you? That sounds fine. Absolutely. Well, that ends part one of our conversation with Dr. Bradley. Please check out episode 88 of the podcast for part two of this interview. It was released on the same day. And before we close out today's episode, just allow me 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that closes out this episode. Please remember to check out part two of our conversation and all the other content on our website. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.